Hey, we hit the pause button on our series in Romans uh, back in December, and uh, we officially start our Romans series uh, next week, but these guys are bringing a few of my friends to help me today uh, to talk, uh, really just kind of help us bridge back into the Romans uh, series, and uh, about five years ago, I actually used these guys to kind of help describe a process, so some of this may sound familiar to you if you've been around here a while. But uh, I want to talk to you about this movement that we've been looking at in the book of Romans. Uh, We've called it moving from the courtroom to the living room. That's been sort of the the movement in the book. And um, I don't know about you, but in Romans chapters 1 through 4, as we studied those chapters, um, those got kind of heavy and heady. Uh, a, a lot of, of, of hard language to listen to, the wrath of God being revealed, people being handed over to their sinful desires or shameful lusts, and all this, this hard thing, these hard things to hear. But it was important that we took the time to understand why we go to the courtroom so that when we make the move to the living room, we have an appreciation for what Christ has done. For what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And we learned in, in Romans chapter 3 that we have been justified, meaning we've been declared not guilty, acquitted, as if we haven't, as if we were, were holy, as if we haven't sinned, justified, redeemed, meaning we've been set free. The ransom price has been paid to set you free. Christ went to the cross, paid that ransom price so that you could walk free from the penalty of sin and death. So you've been redeemed. Your sins have been atoned for. Uh, all the guilt, all the shame, all that stuff that you had done that, that uh, offended God and as we'll continue to learn that caused us to be an enemy of God, that guilt and that shame has been transferred now to Christ our scapegoat and now we have been saved. In fact, what you'll notice in Romans chapter 5 next week is when you, when you crack open Romans chapter 5, you'll, you'll see the shift because some versions will say, now therefore, since we have been justified, here, here's what I'm going to tell you now. And what Paul is saying is, we spent time in the courtroom, we wanted you to understand all the things of how you offended God, but now you're forgiven, and therefore, because you've been justified, because you've been forgiven, redeemed, atoned for, now... Here's what God's doing in you, and here's how to live life in the living room. That's where we're going in Romans. How to live life in the living room. Now, what you're going to experience, and maybe what you are already experiencing, is that once you give your life to Christ, and and reflect on that for a moment, because remember the day you gave your life to Christ. Maybe you were young. Maybe you were older. But you had a sense of joy, hopefully, because all the guilt... All the stuff of the past was removed and you were forgiven. And that brings us joy and we get excited and we're, we're happy about this new life in Christ. We want to read God's word and we're, we're praying and it's wonderful to be a new believer because it seems like God is so gracious to us as new believers because he answers every prayer we pray and, uh, and we're, we're so excited and we get going in the living room and then we start to hit some familiar territory. You know, those temptations, those struggles that we face that got us into trouble in the first place in the courtroom still come our way. Have you, have you noticed that? <laughs> we still have those same temptations. In fact, we even give in to them. And we sin. Now, I remember, I mean, I was seven years old when I gave my life to Christ. I remember 
getting on my knees uh, by my bunk bed. My mom was by me, and I, I, I wanted to make sure that I had Christ in my life. I wanted to be forgiven. And at that young age, I began a journey with Christ. And I, I grew up in a Christian home. I mean, my great-grandfather was a missionary to Tibet. My grandfather, he's 97 years old, still alive. He was a missionary to southwest China. My dad, missionary to Hong Kong, lives here in Salem. If anyone should get this right, it should be me. I've got the heritage, but what I discovered is when I began my journey with Christ that I got pretty frustrated because I was still giving myself to stuff that I, I didn't want to do. And, I, and I, I, I had this inner turmoil going on inside of me. And what made it worse is as I read my Bible, I, I got frustrated. I read verses like this one, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. Now, I didn't understand the context of the verse, but when it said the old life was gone, I was wondering, well, why isn't that true for me? Because it feels like the old life is alive and well. And then I'd read Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. For I can do everything through Christ, who who gives me strength. And I was thinking to myself, I can't do everything. There's still some things that I'm not able to do. Or, or Romans chapter 8, verse 37. We'll get to this verse in, uh, in several weeks. Uh, Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I did not feel like a conqueror. I felt like I was being conquered. And so I talked to people, people I respected. I went to them and I, I asked them, you know, what's going on with me? How come I'm, I'm a believer? Uh, I, I've, I've been forgiven, yet I... I'm still doing that old stuff I still want to do. How come that's going on in my life? How come, I, how come I'm not victorious? And, and people respond to me and say, well, you, 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 just, you just need to have more faith. Or you, you, uh, uh, you, you just need to pray more. One person said to me, Steve, if you really wanted it, you could have it. You could have victory. And I thought to myself, man, I... I feel like I really, really want it. Maybe there's just something wrong with me. Maybe all those other Christians, um, they're normal, and I've just got something, some sort of defect um, with me. And I started hearing the whispers of shame and guilt and, and condemnation, and I just figured I somehow was a mess. And if you've been there, it's, it's sort of like, you know, you experience the joy of salvation. You get here, like, oh, I'm ready for the new life. And before long, that rope kind of gets around you, kind of like a cowboy's lasso. And, uh, and you, you make mistakes, and the guilt and the shame and the condemnation come, and you feel like you're being dragged from the living room back to the courtroom. In fact, that's what happens to many people. They begin a life with Christ. They get going. They're so full of joy. Then they hit this wall. And, and instead of relating to God as father or dad, they go back to the courtroom and they try and have a relationship with the judge, which never really goes very well. And then when they make a mistake, they imagine God with a scowl, with a gavel in hand, looking at them with a disapproving look. But we were never meant to live out our faith in the courtroom because we have a new identity. Our new identity is son and daughter. But how do we make sense of of what's happening with us and what do we do with these mistakes, these failures, these, these sins we still commit? 
Which brings us to my three friends here because I want to talk to you about that. And I'm just going to tell you up front, give you a warning up front. You're going to need to stick with me here because you're going to get about, uh, about five minutes into this and go, what in the world does this have to do with anything? And uh, believe me, I, I am going to make a point uh, eventually. But you won't get it unless you stick with me. And in order to, to, to get it, we need to go back and discover who we were before the fall. We need to see what happened to us at the fall. And then we need to see what's happening to us now that we started with Christ. So, let's go back before the fall. Because Adam and Eve were created and then they were perfect. They were in a perfect environment. God related to them. And you, you're probably very well aware of the fact that we're, we're, we're pretty complex people. We're multidimensional. The scriptures teach us that we have a spirit, that we have a soul, and we have a body. And this one is a little bit more obvious, right? We, we, we understand the physical part pretty easily. But Adam, Adam and Eve were three-dimensional. They were multi-dimensional people. And they had a spirit, meaning this is the part of them that relates to God. That's why we call it a spiritual relationship. Okay? Spirit to spirit. And God, he would give his knowledge, he would give his wisdom to Adam and Eve. And he, it'd be spiritual. And the spirit filtered his knowledge. And then transferred it to the soul, and the soul here, this part relates to the spiritual world, or to God, the soul relates to the natural world. This is where our five senses are. This is our mind, will, and emotions. So the decisions we make, Adam was making decisions based on his spiritual relationship with his father, God. All right, tracking with me so far? So the soul is taking that information in, and then what's happening is the body, which is basically our house or our tent, is living out the spirit-led life. So God is relating to God. I mean, Adam is relating to God. It's a spiritual relationship. Eve is relating to God. It's a spiritual relationship. And they're doing fine. And God says, you know, you have the whole garden to yourselves. You can rule. You can reign. Have a great time. Here's just one thing. There's this one part of the park you shouldn't go to. It's the tree. Don't go to the tree. Don't eat the fruit. And uh, they're okay. Yeah, don't do that. It's the only thing. You can do anything else. Just don't do that. And like most of us, we get as close as we can because one day Eve and Adam are walking in the garden and they're close to that tree. Kind of like, you know, when there are lines painted on the, line, on, the, on the ground and you kind of get as close to it so you can just see how it would be if you could get on the other side. Well, that's what Adam and Eve are doing. And as they're there, Satan is there and he begins tempting And he begins tempting because God has said, don't eat from that tree because if you eat from that tree, you will surely die. And Satan tempts Eve and says, now, wait a minute, Eve. Did God really say, did he really say that that you would die? God's holding out on you, Eve. Because he knows if you take a bite of that fruit, your eyes are going to be opened. You're going to experience life like you've never experienced it before. And there's half truth to that. And Eve is kind of thinking this through, and she takes the fruit, Adam takes the fruit, and they start eating it. And immediately, they realize that they have sinned. 
God called it rebellion. He said, you can do anything, just don't eat the fruit. They rebelled, they ate the fruit, and what this did is it it broke a relationship. But here's the question, did they die on that day? No, their bodies did not die. The scriptures plainly tell us, clearly tell us, that they kept on living for years, centuries. But something in them did die. They died spiritually. And by the way, this hat right here is a symbol of leadership. See, Adam and Eve were led by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to their spirit. This is the leadership that they were under. But because of their sin, they died spiritually. So this part of them is now dead. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says this, Once you were dead in your disobedience and your many sins. You became spiritually dead. We died spiritually when Adam and Eve sinned. We became part of this family that was spiritually dead. And here's what's happened. The hat of leadership that was here, being spirit-led, has been transferred to here, and this is the day when humanism was born. This is the day when people said, I'm going to do what I think is right. You see, our mind, will, and emotions were not receiving knowledge from God through his, through his logic or his logos, Now we're deciding what's right. Now we're deciding what feels good. Now we're determining what is truth. This is the day humanism is born, and it's simply acted out through the body. Now, are you with me? Okay, I got one. Awesome. (laughs) So, here's, here's what's happening. Fast forward to New Testament now, okay? Because now we have humanity that's spiritually dead, And Jesus is talking to one of Israel's teachers. And one of Israel's teachers is wondering about the kingdom of heaven and how to get into heaven and eternal life. And Jesus says something very strange to him that actually makes perfect sense when you think of this picture behind me. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say, you must be born again. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Look, human beings in their body, they can reproduce bodies. You can have babies. Human beings can, can create. They can, they can reproduce. But human beings can't create something that they don't have. And what they don't have is spirit life. And what Jesus is saying, that no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they're born again. What's born again? Their spirit. Only spirit gives birth to spirit. So when you and I bow the knee and confess our sins and declare to God that we have sinned, that we need forgiveness, that we want to be washed clean, we stand in the court and we realize all the failures of our lives and we ask and beg to be saved, the Holy Spirit gives birth to spirit life in us and we are born again. We come back to life. 
we're spiritually alive and we sense the joy of being alive and we're excited and we're thrilled and we're moving from the courtroom to the living room and we get here, we're going full steam and it feels so good and then we hit those temptations, those struggles again and if you look back at these three guys, you can see the picture isn't quite right yet because for so long, we've been in charge. We've been master. We've been calling the shots. But when we bow the knee and turn to God as Savior, what we're telling him is, not only do I want to be saved, I'm going to turn from that old life, and I'm going to turn to a new life. I'm going to repent. That's what it means. To turn from, to turn to. I'm going to repent, and I'm going to live my life differently, and I'm going to die to self. I'm going to move this hat from here to there. And folks, church, that's where the struggle lies. That's where the battle is. So when you get in the living room and you're facing that struggle and you think, oh man, maybe, maybe I'm just a mess. Maybe other people are okay. And No, no, this, this, you're alive. You're, you're saved. But there's something else going on. Now look at this verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. This will mess with your theology a little bit. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. Here's my question for you. Are you saved or are you being saved? Yes. Yes, you are saved. You are saved. You are the moment that you bowed the knee to Christ, the moment you repented, the morning you turned to Him as Savior, you came alive. Spiritually, your spirit was reborn. You've been made whole. You are alive in Christ. But you now need to be saved and move the hat from you being in charge to God being in charge and being spirit led. You're saved and you are being saved. It's like the 100 meter dash. You ever watch the 100 meters or you know, at the Olympics and you see guys shoot out of the running blocks? That's kind of like salvation. Bam! You shoot out and you're alive and you're running. Now, have you ever seen a sprinter at the Olympics stop after 10 meters and go, <laughs> that was great? Well, no, because there's a finish line. Church, there's a finish line for us. The work of salvation of being saved and our spirit coming to life is the beginning. Now we work out our salvation. We're being saved, and there's a finish line, and the finish line is being conformed to the image of Christ. God wants to restore his image, and he wants you and I to become like his son. He wants to move the hat. And in that, sometimes we begin to struggle, maybe even doubt. Are we okay? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 says this. For by that one offering, referring to the cross, for by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. (laughs) Look closely at that verse. He forever made you perfect, you who he is making holy. See what he's doing here? He looks at you. You're justified. You're perfect. And he's making you holy. It's a bit of a mind bender. But what's happening here is you are perfect. You are dressed in his righteousness. And now you're on the journey. You're running a marathon, not a sprint. 
and you're moving the hat from the soul to the spirit. And Paul in Romans will call this walking in the spirit. You and I being spirit-led, our spirit submitting to God's spirit and our mind, will, and emotions submitting to the lordship of God and living it out in our flesh. And that journey is the journey of spiritual transformation. Theologians call it sanctification, which is a big word which simply means to be set apart. To be set apart from the pattern of this world. So you're going to hear Paul in Romans. You're going to hear him talk about his struggle. He's going to say things like, man, I don't know why I do the things that I know I shouldn't do. And he'll say stuff like, in in one verse, what a wretched man I am. Why do I do the things that I I don't want to? How come I, I don't do the things I know I should do? And then he comes to this point where he says in, in, in Romans chapter 8, which is called, literally called the great eight, where he says, now there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, he went from the courtroom to the living room. No more condemnation. Your son, your daughter, you're just learning how to walk. Uh, Trina and I have four kids. They're, um, they're, they're grown up. Um, our youngest son, Cal, um, is graduating early. He'll be done in three weeks. Um, so we'll uh, officially be empty nesters, but we'll have kids still living at home. And, uh, and it's, man, our kids have brought us so much uh, joy. And, and we, one of our daughters just got engaged in December. Another daughter has been married for several years, um, has uh, a little, little girl, our granddaughter. She'll be a year next, uh, next month, or <laughs> this month, it's January. Uh, next week, she'll be a year old. And you know, kids, when they're first born, have a lot to learn. And, um, you know, the very basic things, like, uh, you know, how to eat and when to sleep and, um, and how to walk. And I remember when our kids were younger, we were teaching them how to walk. And, you know, they get to that age. In fact, my granddaughter's there right now. She's, she's in this last month, she's been one of those cruisers, you know, that gets her hand on the couch and just sort of moves the hand, scoots her feet, and gets to the end of the couch and feels so good about herself. She looks back at you and smiles, and you cheer her on, and then there's this gap until the next table or to where the the hallway is. And she's kind of looking at that gap, knowing that there's nothing to get her hands on, looks back at you, and uh, and then she sort of takes a stab at it and sort of saunters or kind of meanders and teeters and totters over and gets to the wall and is all happy and starts moving along that wall. She's discovering the house. She's learning how to walk. And when your kids get old enough, you know, you're sitting in the living room, and I remember this with our kids. I've seen this with my granddaughter. You're sitting on the couch, and there she is. She's sort of cruising around on the table and by the couch, and, and then, then she's going to walk across the living room to a basket of toys. And she gets going, and uh, she's about three or four steps into it. She's doing great, and then, man, you can tell it's happening. She's starting to lose her, her, her balance. And it's like, you know, mayday, mayday, going down. You know, it's, she's going to fall. And she looks back at you like, this is going to hurt, isn't it? This is going to be the worst thing in the world. And you're like, you're totally fine. You're safe. And you're, you're going to let her fall because she's, she's going to learn how to walk. And she falls back on her diaper. And, and do you, when you see your daughter or your son or your grandson or your granddaughter, do you then step up off the couch and go, you incompetent little child. 
Why? How come you don't know how to walk? You should get up. Come on, you lazy little baby. Get up. Walk. Do you do that? Because if you do, I'd love to talk to you. We don't do that, right? They're babies. They're learning how to walk. And some kids learn to walk sooner than others. You have a dad. You have a father. You've been adopted into his family. You're learning how to walk. He's got his fingers out. He's letting you hold on. Do you know that he adores you? Do you know that even when you mess your pants, he still loves you? He loves to walk you around. And yep, you know, you get going on your own and you fall. It doesn't change the relationship. He doesn't scowl. He doesn't get a gavel and scream and yell because he's not a judge. He's your dad. And he loves you and he likes you. Should some of you be walking a little bit better by now? Maybe. But the point is this. He is your father. He is for you. Nothing will change the fact that he's your dad. And you're not being drugged back to the courtroom. What's happening is that you're experiencing spiritual transformation. You're experiencing spiritual growth. You were saved not to keep on living how you were, but to change the way you lived and to become like Christ. And that, my friends, is a journey. And that takes time. And it happens as we abide in him. As we have contact, we connect like a branch in the vine. You have, you have met Christ as your savior. Now what you need to do is meet Christ as your sanctifier. And by his spirit, he will empower you to restore you to the image that he created all of us to be so that we might reflect his glory and exalt his great name. Make sense? All right. Got seven of you there. We're making, making progress. That's where we're going in Romans. That's what Paul is going to be talking about in the next few chapters. So if you've got your Bible, start reading chapters 5 through 8. That's what will be in the next two months. Start learning. Start looking through this, this picture. Start listening to what Paul is saying. And let's embrace this journey. And let us reflect the image of Christ to our world who so desperately needs to see him.